My name is Victor Kubik. Welcome to the Kubik Report. Today's guest is Aaron Dean, a name many of our regular listeners have heard and know and know quite well. Last week I was at his home and he mentioned that he had been with Prince Charles for several hours when we were talking to him at, at dinner time. And I thought to myself, you know, afterwards, I said, here's the podcast. I mean, he, he, here's a perfect story. Because Aaron Dean's stories and recollections of a particular period in the time of our church are priceless. He's been one of our more popular guests on podcasts I have done before. And this is the very first one here on the Cubic Report. So welcome, Aaron. Oh, thank you, Victor Cubic. I appreciate this very much. We have, again, appreciated Aaron and his wife very much and just feel a very close bond and friendship. But anyway, Prince Charles, his mother was buried less than two weeks ago, Queen Elizabeth II. It's been a very, very momentous period in Great Britain. Prince Charles has been heir to the throne and has been waiting for, for decades. His mother was the longest reigning queen, and here he is at age 73 or 74 taking on this very, very important role. But why do we have Aaron Dean, and how did he get into all this? Well, he'll explain some of this, but let me give you a brief introduction. Aaron Dean at one time started back in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> 1974. 1974, as a steward on a private jet for Herbert W. Armstrong. In fact, both he and his wife worked in that particular role. But he was far more than steward. He became a confidant of Herbert Armstrong, and he was in on many of the visits to important people around the world, or notable people, let's say, around the world. And one of them was Prince Charles. I remember at that time I was a pastor, and I would read about the exploits of Aaron Dean and see his picture with Herbert Armstrong. And he would be sitting there, and, and uh, Herbert Armstrong would be talking to various people. I do remember very well him talking to royalty in the United Kingdom. Aaron had become a person who really helped Herbert Armstrong. Aaron Dean's visits, which were more than just one. He started on the airplane, became Mr. Armstrong's aide, and also I became vice president of the International for the Ambassador Foundation, which is where our projects did. And we had a project, we had several projects in England along the way, but the one we had with Prince Charles was the uh, Royal Opera House at Covent Gardens. And Prince Charles was the main patron of that. And so we met with, uh, with him and uh, Pat Spooner, who was kind of running the project at the time, uh, about, oh, about a half dozen times during that project. Uh, the reason we got into it is the Royal Opera House is very famous, but when we saw the dressing rooms for the stars, and of course we had Ambassador Auditorium, which was the finest <laughs> auditorium for performing in the world, although it was small, but the dressing rooms were just ornate with onyx and gold and things. Or the dressing rooms at the Covent Gardens were cement with painted pipes running down the walls <laughs> and, and, and open shower. I mean, it was just kind of a mess. And, and uh, Strong said, you know, the, the world's performers should not have to do something like that. So they were doing the whole hall, but he chose to, to do the dressing rooms for the, for the stars and, and the performers which worked real good for us because a lot of those performers also performed in our ambassador auditorium. And, uh, and many of them actually we got because we met them there at the Covent Gardens. 
And uh, at the time, there was some competition between the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles and ours, and they said nobody could, they wouldn't let anybody perform at their pavilion if they performed at the Master Auditorium. Well, when Rubenstein came, of course, the number one pianist in the world at the time, he uh, told the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion that, that he wouldn't perform there unless he was allowed to perform in Ambassador Auditorium. And also, they had to bring the Steinways from Ambassador Auditorium to the pavilion to, for him to perform on, which irritated them. But, <laughs> but, but ours came from Britain, and uh, you couldn't get a European Steinway unless you had contacts. You could buy them in Europe, not in America. But because we had the campus in Brick of Wood, we could buy it for that campus. And then we had it shipped over from there to the U.S. So we had two German Steinways in our auditorium, which Rubenstein wanted to play. So that, that gave us a contact. And other, after that, then other performers, too, they wanted to play in our auditorium. And, and so they kind of dropped their competition in that because they wanted those people to perform at the pavilion as well. So how, was this before or after connection with Charles? Uh, well, it was, we, we had our concert show before the connection with Charles, but it was the the foundation's connection with redoing Covent Gardens that uh, brought Prince Charles into the picture. Mm-hmm. And so we met several times at Covent Gardens and a couple places. The, the main event that we had because of this, though, was there were about 10 Americans that, that contributed to this thing, a lot of them more heavily than we did. But the Rothschilds, who owned the estate in Hampton Gardens, which has the largest rhododendron garden in the world. They, they had people around the world collecting from Nepal and South America, everywhere. Now, this, this is Covent Gardens? Yeah. Okay. No, no, this is actually the Rothschild Estate in oh. Southampton. That, and that's where the event was being held. It was a, a, an event for those 10 or so of us that had contributed. And so, and Prince Charles and Princess Diana were the guests of honor, obviously the patron, and then Edmund and Leopold Rothschild, who lived at the estate, were both there as well. Now, where is this Hampton? It's on the south side of England. It's about an hour out of London. Okay, so it isn't like in the London area. No, no, it's not the London area. But uh, So before we had met in London with him, and in fact, we were actually there in England when he got married, and Charles and Diana got married, and so this was a couple of years after that. And so it was interesting to, to talk with him and, and ride with him, but especially that day, to spend a whole day from about oh, roughly around 10, 30, 11 in the morning till 4, 4.30 in the afternoon with them at the estate. It was fascinating, and, and we toured the grounds where the rhododendrons were, and they, uh, and they also planted a tree, and Edmund Rothschild, he throws a shovel of dirt on the tree, and Leopold Rothschild throws a shovel of dirt on the tree, and Prince Charles throws a devil of dirt on the tree, and then Princess Diana, who was there talking to us, she has to throw a shovel on, too, and she turns around to us and says, this tree's going to be grow up to be the biggest snob tree in England. <laughs> so, so she was a lot of fun. And so we, we toured the garden for a bit, and then uh, we uh, went to the house for lunch. And it was the Rothschild Estate, which was huge, obviously. And once we got in, Michelle wanted to go out and get something. Once we went in, they locked the doors. I mean, that, was, that was it. You're locked in, nothing. And then uh, she actually went to go to the bathroom too and they know you can't do that because Princess Diana's in there so, so everything was very organized and very very uh, straightforward in that manner well this is just so interesting to hear about these little, little quips how what kinds of things would you talk about would you go beyond just business uh, yes we did uh, Prince Charles was a bit guarded in more of a public setting but in a private setting he was less guarded and Princess Diana was less guarded than that she, she liked to just talk about normal things and Prince Charles, a couple of times I talked to him alone, he was a lot more open. 
But, uh, you know, to keep the respect and the protocol, I think he's very much like his mother in understanding that, although he was less than his mom, and I'm wondering, being King Charles, and I expect him to take the name King Charles because he's been Prince Charles for 70 years, so you know, Prince of Wales, so to change your name now, you probably wouldn't have answered to it. Well, I think that what he's already called King, King Charles yeah, III. Yeah, he, he became King Charles. He became king the minute she died, even though the coronation comes much later. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, the coronation, I guess, is 2023. Yeah. They're going to talk about that. But I think it's just uh, very, very fascinating uh, about Prince Charles. One thing, he has been actually more open in the things that he's talked about, mm-hmm. like the World Summit there, you yeah. know, <laughs> climate summit, whatever. Yeah, yeah he's very much into the climate thing. I'm not sure how much he'll do that because his mother, the queen, stayed above all of that. Mm-hmm. He's already got a reputation, so I'm not sure how much he'll say or do now that he's king because that uh, that position can be awkward. <laughs> he's, he's the longest, under, you know, she's the longest reigning monarch. He's the longest Prince of Wales, 70 years of Prince of Wales. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long mentorship. Well, I know he takes his role very, very seriously mm-hmm. as, as king. Yeah, he did, and, and we talked a bit because he was wondering if he'd ever be king <laughs> because at the time he's uh, he's just shy of four years older than I am, so we're pretty much close to the same age. Of course, his mom was in great health at the time and long life in the family, so he, he wasn't sure <laughs> he might die before her. And so, uh, he, But the preparation was all there. Well, yeah. we could have had Prince Andrew <laughs> or yeah. King Andrew. <laughs> yeah, that would have been very different. But uh, and Charles is, it's interesting. The firstborn sons always tend to take a more mature look at their position than the younger brothers. Younger siblings are always kind of, and that was the same thing with uh, with Queen Elizabeth's sister. She she was that way as well. So it's it's interesting to meet with them. Uh, Diana again, royalty, and we'd met Earl Spencer, her father, and toured Althorpe uh, before that, and so there was some discussion there. But the interesting thing is is. In meeting with Prince Charles, and I haven't met with him for 35 years now, and uh, he'd probably remember me because he and I both still look enough alike, and only because most of the people we dealt with were 30 to 50 years older than we. <laughs> and it, you know, very seldom do people at, in their late 20s, early 30s get involved in these things. I mean, the, the royalty does, but a private citizen like myself wouldn't, except for the position. So, so very few people your own age to get to talk to. And in fact, Diana was lamenting that because she said, everybody I talk to is 30 or 40 years older than I am. And, and we're, we're sitting with her in a little alcove on a bench there at the, at the uh, estate, the, uh, the Rothschilds. And, and uh, just about a half an hour, I just sat and talked. And she was talking about uh, uh, well, you know, the family. She didn't like a lot of the protocols. And I don't think she realized a lot of them, obviously, you, you know. But the, the things like you can't travel with the next three people in line to the throne in the same vehicle, same plane, same whatever. Well, how do you take a family vacation together? I mean, you can meet there and have the vacation. But when she had uh, Harry, and it was Charles, William, Harry, the three in line for the throne, they couldn't actually all be in the same vehicle. Mm-hmm. And she, she didn't like that. She wanted family things. And, and, of course, growing up royal but distant royal, mm-hmm. she was able to have a regular life and do regular things, taught school, et cetera. And Michelle had taught school too, so they were able to talk about school and children. And so Michelle was on all, on all these visits. Oh yeah, uh-huh. not a, she wasn't on all the visits early, but she was she was on the, the later ones, and she was there at, at the Rothschilds. Mm-hmm. And so she was sitting with me with with Diana and Charles, and it was funny. We we got called into lunch, and we were sitting at a table, and she came, and all of us started to get up to give her a seat, and she said, "No, no, no." 
She said, no, no, stay there, stay there. And there was a stairway right beside of it. And she went up the stairs about five, four or five stairs and sat down there. And said, this is the best seat in the house. And well, she, 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 she really caught, captured the hearts of the entire world. Yeah. What was her, I, I know that the first lady or, you know, the princess, mm-hmm. you know, have to have or expected to have some type of charity mm-hmm. that they support. Yeah. But she seemed to really yeah. support her minds. On the minds thing. Yeah, yeah getting, making the world safe for people. That's what she wanted. Children, all the causes for helping people and children she was very much in the into those things i know that she was so into that that when when she died i think that uh, either harry or william really wanted to continue that work yeah. that that she did in angola in particular yeah and they have continued that work and that's uh, that's t- typical for them now aaron when you talk to these people you were benefactors to them who would do nice mm-hmm. things like for example the covent garden opera house and you you did a lot of nice things for them but did they ever ask you Know, who are you and, and what do you represent? Yeah, they, they knew who we were, uh, no question there. They, uh, I mean, obviously the staff does things like that ahead of time. Because, you know, but, uh, but Prince Charles knew, of course, at that time, the Plain Truth magazine was, was 8 million copies and it was well known and, and the radio programs and things. Now, what years were these? Do you remember? It was, my visits basically were 80 through 86, mm-hmm. you know, to that, that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then I stepped aside after that from the foundation to have to have our son and daughter and then teach at the university. But during those years in the early 80s, uh, which was kind of a tumultuous time in their, their marriage a bit too. In fact, when Diane was there, she had a really heavily quilted uh, dress on, beautifully done. But my wife and I both noticed that it was really heavily quilted and it wasn't that cold. And, uh, and then, of course, we learned later that she had some bulimic uh, problems, and that was during that, that time. And we didn't really discuss that, but but obviously some of the awkward things that were going on mm-hmm. were happening at that point. She, you know, she was the people's princess, no question. And because she was so down to earth is, is really why they liked her so much. At the same time, like the Queen Elizabeth kept the dignity of the job. You know, when you let your hair down too much, you become too familiar, you can lose the dignity of the position. And there was a big difference between Diana and Charles in that. And Charles was very much trying to maintain the dignity of the position where Diana wanted to be more free-flowing. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's why people liked her. But if, if you do that too long, pretty soon you're just one of the people. And, and, and you're not one of the people. You're, you're a princess. You're in line to be queen in that case with her. And all that didn't work out that way. But that was uh, something that, that she knew and fought against a bit at times and, and needed, needed that freedom. Again, if, you're, if you grow up with it like Charles did from the day one, you know it, respect that, and, and his mother was always telling him, you know, you're going to be king, you got to maintain this type of relationship. I'd hoped we'd meet the queen sometime. We actually never did meet the queen. Okay. We had a chance to meet her once. Uh, we were invited to King Leopold's funeral when he died in 1983, and all the royalty of Europe went to his funeral, and that was because of the war and all the things that they all had the same common background. But that was in September of 83 and with the feast coming and, and other things, and plus a lot of walking. Mr. Armstrong clearly couldn't go. I was invited as well because I was, uh, King Leopold had put me on his foundation, on his board, and so I was invited as well, but, but again, I couldn't go either, so we'd have probably met a lot of royalty at that one, but uh, it would have been an unusual occasion, to say the least. So, uh, but now, like I said, class asked me the other day, have you, did you meet uh, uh, the queen? I said, no, but we met the king. <laughs> Future. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that somehow in the back of his mind, as he recalls things, and who knows what opportunities there may be for yeah. 
rekindling yeah. some of that. Yeah, yeah, you really, you never know. And like I said, I'm sure he'd recognize me. He probably wouldn't remember my name. It's been so long. But only because everybody else was really old and I was young. And so it's kind of like a black swan in the middle of white swans. So you tend to <laughs> stand out. And so my youth would, would make it. And again, it, when you're in that situation, it's always nice to find someone at the same age. In fact, at the uh, Rochelle Estate, there was a marquee uh, there from Spain who was my age. And we hit it off, and he actually was on the board of uh, Arm and Hammer's World Affairs Colleges. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. And so we became good friends. But the same thing, because we're the same age. It makes a difference when you you finally find someone that, hey, you can talk about the things that you're interested in instead of instead of uh, you know, what, what was history to you is their life. Uh-huh. So You represented yourself as the Ambassador Foundation. Was that in connection with the church or with Ambassador College? Yes, it was. Uh, Ambassador Foundation started out as Ambassador International Cultural Foundation, which was a mouthful, and it got shortened to Ambassador Foundation. And uh, it was set up in the 70s, and it was, a, it was an arm of the church because the foundation, we had so many politicians that we'd worked with and uh, as well on our projects in Asia and Africa and places. And the political people, they knew about the church. They, we didn't hide the church. Mr. Armstrong preached the gospel to him, and he'd tell them about the kingdom, that Christ is going to return and bring peace. And, and his message was, was, you don't have to blame me. I'm just telling you. And so he would do that. But at the same time, uh, if you had, a, if you look at the ads today, they're all negative. And so, hey, these people are with that church. And, mm-hmm. and the foundation gave him an opportunity of, 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 well, no, no, this foundation is, is digging wells and building schools and, and helping us and bought boats in Sri Lanka for the poor fishermen and things. And they're helping us win our country. And, and so it gave them a, a a way to answer the question that they're not supporting the church because again the church had no proselytizing and no monetary interest returning to us it was all outgoing and giving and humanitarian but it did give them an arm's length relationship with us to protect friends of ours actually in these countries and so you really didn't want them At the same time they knew all about the church mr armstrong gave some of these books to some of them and even prince charles he knew who we were of course, the tabloids came out when we were doing visits, and, and uh, that was awkward at times. And, but the royal family had a, a thing, similar to Mr. Armstrong. Anytime people attack you for something, you, you know, true, false, indifferent, you just ignore it. All you do by bringing it up or, or saying, no, it didn't happen, is, is prolong the thing, and people believe what they're going to believe. So Prince Charles, you told me that. I made a comment, yeah, you feel like suing him, and he kind of bristled back. <laughs> and I said, yeah, of course you don't, because you don't want to cause that problem, and then he relaxed again. Yeah, well, it's interesting that the Washington Post uh, just did an article about uh, the royal family and about the monarchy in the United Kingdom that was so, it said, sometimes tainted by some of the tabloids that were given. But one of the things about the monarchy is that their policy was they just don't respond. They just ignore it. They just make no comment on it whatsoever. And over time, these people finally kind of drift, you know, slink back from what, what they did. But the monarchy kind of maintained its dignity even through less, less than stellar examples. Yes. In the oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing. And again, that's what Mr. Armstrong did with anyone. And, and I, same thing. I mean, unless you have paperwork that can prove what you're going to say, all you do is, is create an ongoing story. Uh, and eventually, when you get no comment, no comment, no comment, there's nothing to comment on. <laughs> well, I think right now all the news is one side throwing, smearing the other side, the other side smearing back, and, oh. and it kind of goes nowhere. And It'll be interesting. King Charles, I'm glad that the queen endorsed Camilla basically before she died because that would have been very awkward for the people, and 
it's been long enough now that they've accepted her as the, the queen consort. So it'll be interesting to see how long that is. And, and the people like William and the monarch, a lot of people complain about the money. And I always say, well, do you realize how much money the royalty brings in? How many people come to watch the guards change? How many people come to see these events? How many people come, you know, and give money because of these things? So, so I mean, they earned their keep, especially the queen. She had so many things she did. And Prince Charles at the time was doing a lot of things as well. Well, I, I'm really amazed as to some of the public things that they do do. Like you, you mentioned here about cultural things, also humanitarian things that the, that the Queen did. They really did. And it's, it's amazing that the Queen uh, took an interest in just things that are happening in the world. Her very, very last card, her very last communication was to send notes of condolences to the victims' families of those that were butchered, that were yeah. killed by knives in Saskatchewan. I mean, she, yeah. she actually ex expressed uh, real sorrow for that. Yeah, she was over the Commonwealth, and she always saw it that way. So where anything happened in the Commonwealth, she would acknowledge it, and, and the press wouldn't always pick it up, but, but they did a lot of it. But, and that's, she saw her job as that function, and she did a good job with it. My younger brother, uh, several years ago, wrote a letter to the Queen, <laughs> and he wrote to Queen Elizabeth, and he wrote about our background being refugees, you know, his yeah. parents, and of course I was with my parents at that time. And, and so he, he wrote a nice letter, expressed things, and also thanked her for her service, because my parents actually uh, lived in the British zone of, uh -huh. of Germany during, uh, after World War II. For four years they lived in a refugee camp. And so he, he wrote a letter uh, to her. And he received a nice letter in return. Now, I'm sure that Queen Elizabeth didn't yeah. sit there yeah. and open yeah. the mail and everything. But nonetheless, yeah. he sent that to me today. Wow. <laughs> you know, a letter that was, I'm not yes. sure what the signature was, but it was si signed yeah. by, the, by Queen Elizabeth, not only thanking him for his letter, but making a comment about yeah. something in there. It, it showed a care yeah. for people around them rather than a monarchy that was just all into itself. And they did care. I, I, again, I wrote letters like that for Mr. Armstrong and that he signed. Mm -hmm. uh, the same thing. I mean, they, in his case, he had no eyesight and couldn't really write a lot of those things personally. So, But he, he, he had changed the wording a lot of times and add things to it that I had to put in. And so I, I, the queen, I'm sure she didn't write it, but someone did it for her. And, and she may have added some things to it. And uh, well, That to me is like she was called the servant oh, yeah. queen. And, and I really do feel like you know, we have so many bad examples of leadership in this world, but it's really, really nice to have inklings of something that is on a higher plane. Yeah, I found that the, I mean, we met a lot of prime ministers, a lot of presidents, a lot of politicians uh, in places, but we also met a lot of royalty. And the royalty is different because they're not trying to run again. <laughs> I mean, they only run once and they die. That's it. It's over. So, so they don't have to worry about the people. I mean, they worry about the protocols and things. But at the same time, uh, most of them really do care about their people, and they try to do it. Even the constitutional monarchies that are there, you know, very few real monarchies anymore. But the power in a constitutional monarchy can be very, very great. I mean, it was in Thailand. It was in England. It was in, in uh, Nepal before the family there got killed. And uh, in Japan, obviously, with the emperor. Those are, those are all special positions that— that you know, if they put thumbs up or thumbs down on something, it tended to go that way, regardless of the politics. Well, it, it's an institution that, while it didn't have armies, you know, at direct mm -hmm. command, it did have a lot of influence yes. on those who did have control over over armies. I think that the papacy is another yeah. institution <laughs> yeah. similar to that yeah, in the, the Swiss world. Guards, yeah, yeah uh, all that. I mean, yeah. 
you know, the, Stalin would oftentimes say, <laughs> how many divisions does the Pope have? <laughs> and yet his influence around the world is, is, uh, strong. is very yeah. strong. And the same thing with the, with the monarchy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I wrote some personal blogs after Queen Elizabeth died because I, I lived in England for two years and I have traveled to British Commonwealth countries. I counted that I have spoken in congregations in 12 or 13 countries yeah. around the world that were part of the Commonwealth at yeah. one time. It just really impressed upon me the power and the strength and the influence mm -hmm. of the monarchy and how they wanted to project Queen Elizabeth. I mean, I'm looking at postage stamps last week of Australia, and it's got these beautiful yeah. pictures of Queen yeah. Elizabeth halfway across the world. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering when the money's going to change and put King Charles on it. <laughs> it's been so long with Queen Elizabeth. But uh, she, yeah, it, it's amazing the respect that they, and what's amazing to me is when you go to those British commonwealths, even though they're free countries now, the, they left schools and bridges and, and roads and things for the people. And those countries are far better off than the other imperialistic countries that, that dominated and, uh, and took from the country. And, and the British, they made a lot of money as well, but they left the country in better shape than they found it in the sense of the school and education. Absolutely. You see railroads that are still functioning from the British times that have not been kept up since. Yes, I know. That's the problem. It's, they've held up, and, and which is awkward. I find the Chinese, they build roads, but they, they basically build a road that lasts long enough for them to take out the minerals they want to take out of the country. And they fall apart. That's exactly right. I have worked in the Copper Belt of Zambia, mm -hmm and have ridden on this main highway yeah. uh, from where our elder is, they just put enough asphalt there to have these huge trucks that haul copper mm -hmm. work them, and then they just abandon them. Yeah, and that, that's sad because they don't leave it better than they found it. I mean, the, the, the structure's there, but to leave something, I mean, roads should last you know, 30, 40 years with minor maintenance, and, and to have roads only last three or four years is, is sad. But a lot of the British things are 50 years ago are still functioning. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it, it's interesting too. I've with some of the people I dealt with in uh, Zimbabwe, went back when I was Rhodesia. Their education system is the one thing that uh, the countries around them actually want to hire people out of Zimbabwe because they're better educated than their own people. So uh, the British and the Queen recognized that, and they did a lot of a lot of good. And 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 she respects their independence, but at the same time, I, I think they respected her for her role that she, that she did in trying to keep free trade between the, the Commonwealth countries, whether they were free or, or not. And those things uh, meant a lot to her. And it meant a lot to Prince Charles as well, and King Charles now, and I'm sure I'll keep that. I know this uh, video has been played so many times, but the Queen, when she was 21 years old, mm -hmm. and not yet Queen, it was still another six yeah. years or so, but how she was going to devote her life to that particular role. To me, that is still a very, very touching video. Yeah, it is, and that'll be quoted for forever, I'm sure. And it'd be nice if every monarch and every prince would see and do the same thing that, that she did. Well, I, I, well, one thing, too, that really strikes me is uh, the English language. It's uncanny that the English language has, which is not one of the world's best languages, believe yeah. me. I mean, I speak languages that are better organized as far as declensions of yeah. nouns and all that in English, which has words from so many other nations tossed in, and, and it's things hard to spell mm -hmm. and everything. But nonetheless, it's become the lingua franca of yeah. the world. And you can go from one place to another and be able to do business. I might just mention here, for example, Zambia, for, mm -hmm. for example, which has seven major languages yeah. and 49, yeah. each of those have seven dialects. Yeah. And so we had our elder there who was married to uh, Actually, I think she was Zimbabwean. And 
with all the languages around, you know, I know they spoke English to us when we were there. And I said, what language do you speak when the two of you are just at home? Yeah. It was English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, you have to be able to communicate. And the, and the biggest reason for that, I think, is, I mean, the empire was a big part of it, but actually the Industrial Revolution, all the inventions and things came from Britain and America and the Commonwealth. And so all the manuals to repair things were in English. In fact, in Sri Lanka, we were doing a project uh, in Neuralia. We had a school there teaching computers and things to, to, to some of the poorer people. And it was fascinating because he was saying that the, the biggest mistake we made was to stop teaching English in the school. And so they have one generation, about 20 years, where they didn't, and now they are teaching again. But they said, all the manuals are in English for these things. Of course, now with computers, you can translate and do things, but it was very difficult for them to repair the bridges and the dams and the hydroelectric plants and things the British put up without, with people that couldn't read the manual. Well, also, <laughs> it's, it's not just that, but it's also how people interact with one another. Yes. I know that the EU and its countries joined the EU Estonia, for example, which was a former Soviet republic, they were forced, they had the Russian language forced on them, and they couldn't wait to get rid of it. <laughs> they couldn't yeah. Yeah. One reason I started working in Estonia is because I spoke Russian, but I found out very quickly that they hated the Russians. <laughs> and then also when the EU came in, they said, we're going to go with German. We're going to do the German language. <laughs> that flopped. Believe yeah. it or not, the yeah. German just didn't have anywhere. What did succeed was the English language. Yeah. And all, in, in Estonia and the Scandinavian and the Nordic countries, English is the second language and almost equal to their home language. Yeah, and, and that's worldwide. That's all around the world. I mean, the shopkeepers speaking, you know, if you want to do business and communicate, it's English. So except for the people in your family and, and the local natives, you're not going to understand anyone else. I, I was bumped by, into by a kid in uh, Jerusalem when I was there once, and he said, excuse me, in about six languages before he got the one that <laughs> I recognized. <laughs> so so it, it is interesting, though, but, but English is the, is the main one. The problem we have here is we don't learn other languages in the U.S. We should. That is such a sad, yeah. sad thing. I, I, like I said, I speak, mm. uh, I speak three languages, mm. and it really makes a big difference in just even how your mind works. In fact, it actually confuses me in English because I sometimes turn yeah. words yeah. around. But nonetheless, you learn that there's different ways of saying things, mm -hmm. and there's different mm -hmm. expressions. Yeah. And actually, I think it, you come across as just being more nimble with knowledge. Yeah, you do, and, and to be more educated. I mean, let's say if you know more languages, people assume you're, you're more educated, and you are, obviously, even in the language. You may not be in, in other mathematical disciplines or, or science disciplines, but the people that, uh, I know the one, Sawat Yingyad, who did our setup in Asia, he spoke seven languages, uh, three Latin-based ones and four of the Asian languages. And uh, to see him switch from one to another. Was well, amazing. the thing is, is that if you know like two or three languages, mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to yeah. learn more after that. Exactly. And you can, you'll find people that speak one of them somewhere. But English is always the, the main one for people to turn to. And, uh, and the British Empire did that for the world, basically. Well, it's amazing that countries like India, for example, have almost as many English-speaking or more yeah. than in the United States. Yes, exactly, they do. And, and, and that's common, too. Like in Abidjan, the capital down there, it's, it's the largest French-speaking city in the world. It has twice as many people as Paris does. So th that happens in places where they, they learn the language and, and places where the population is booming and they know English uh, creates that. But it's, like I said, it's something that the, the British Empire did and, and the Americans, because of our industrial age and the 
being the the culture the center for the world for all sorts of buildings and, and things. People came to people came to the United States in the early 1900s to see the magnificence of all the buildings and things, and and uh, they went to England to see some of their stuff, but they also went to England to see the royalty and to see the pageantry. And the pageantry of England always reminded me of the pageantry of Solomon in the Bible when it talks about that. And even Christ said, even Solomon wasn't adorned in all this glorious. Mm-hmm. These so, you know, you think of the pageantry and the things there. Then you, you, to me, I think of Solomon and compare that. Well, I, I just saw that again with a funeral. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it was it was a magnificent funeral, and I didn't I didn't regret anything yeah. that they did. They had the mm-hmm. various bands that. Yeah. Per- played a particular way. <laughs> uh, they had this uh, mournful stepping of mm-hmm. the drum beat mm-hmm. as, as they marched the cortege yeah. through the town as they moved it from Buckingham Palace to uh, the cathedral. And uh, j- yeah. just the respect mm-hmm. for, for an empire, I thought to myself, this is a temporal empire and we are burying a monarch mm-hmm. here. But it's also a harbinger yeah. <laughs> of a different world with yeah. a permanent monarch. Yeah. And, and it, when I talk, when it speaks in the Bible about crown him with many crowns. Oh, yeah. And king of king and lord of lords. I mean, that's going to be a pageantry that no one's ever seen before. No, and we're, go, we're going to be happy about it. Yes. Yeah, it'll, it'll bring peace to the earth, and that's the critical. That was a message that, that uh, Mr. Armstrong carried all the time I traveled with him, is that, that there will be peace, and Christ will return. And, and if people don't believe it, makes no difference. He just declared it as a witness to them and, and uh, let the chips fall where they may. Well, that's the thing that I wanted to comment on. It kind of comes back to me now in this uh, podcast, is that uh, uh, Mr. Armstrong may have had these meetings with world leaders, who, some who may have been less than stellar in their <laughs> performance yeah, yeah. or human rights or, or, or yeah. whatever. Nonetheless, he was able to get a message to the mm-hmm. people, whether it was through uh, a rotary meeting mm-hmm. In fact, I believe he spoke to the Athens Rotary Club. Yeah, that was the Billionaire Rotary Club. That was <laughs> full of billionaires. Nassus was all these people. And, and it was one of the mm-hmm. World Tomorrow programs. Oh, yeah. And nonetheless, they say, who is this guy? Who is this man who speaks so uh, authoritatively, authoritatively yeah. about yeah. ideals? Yeah. And certainly that, that has had an impact. And I, I feel like the other things, too, that he said, people would ask in spite of where the conversation started, who are these people yeah. and what do they represent? Yeah, and that was always, <laughs> talking about the Athens Rotary is funny because that one, we're supposed to go there at 6.30. At 6 o'clock, I got a phone call and uh, it was the, the president of the Rotary and he said, oh, by the way, uh, we have a rule in our Rotary that we don't talk about religion because it's caused so much problems. And uh, what's Mr. Armstrong going to speak about? <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, boy, I have no idea. But I, I, I gave the pageant answer. I said, well, he's going to talk about world peace. And he was happy with that. And, of course, Mr. Armstrong gave one of the strongest religious messages <laughs> I heard him give. And I thought, oh, my head's going to be cut off because the president came running at me afterwards. And, uh, and, and he said, uh, that was fascinating. We need to change our rule. That was a fascinating talk. <laughs> So, well, it kind of depends uh, upon who you are. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And uh, that, and but he he did that. You never knew how the crowd would react and, and what people would do. But and sometimes you're stronger than others, and and sometimes you'd say more. But you always talk about that strong unseen hand from somewhere. That was kind of a, a calling card he did because people don't believe it, and but it's going to happen. And you know the, the key is people's isn't the people's choice isn't what's going to happen. People's choice is whether they want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. That's our choice. 
And uh, God gives us that. Well, I, I feel like one time we had a little seminar about who says what. And, you know, you could be, I could give a speech about the way of give and the way mm-hmm. of get, mm-hmm. and it kind of sound flat from, from me. But with having a white-haired patriarch yeah. be able to express that as yeah. the very mind of God, frankly, yeah. uh, is, does have that great impact. Yeah, he broke things down in a very simple to understand language. I mean, a great vocabulary, but he wrote things at a, what he would say was about a, a fifth or sixth grade level that so people would understand it. The purpose of it is not to be elegant and huge words. The purpose is to get a point across, and that's what he wanted to make sure they understood it. So his writings and his speaking were very straightforward and easy to understand. Well, I feel, too, that right now I feel like my faith is not, anchored by what I currently see, mm-hmm. you know, even where, where we are, but it's, it's anchored in the things that I had heard originally mm-hmm. that revealed certain truths. Yeah, exactly. And, and those truths, and, and again, his challenge was, don't believe me, believe your Bible, look it up for yourself. And when you look it up for yourself, I'm reminded of the book that says the Bible says that because what you're told and what's there is very different at times. And uh, are you trying to believe what God wrote or are you trying to believe what people have interpreted or created? in their own minds. Aaron, is there anything else that you wanted to comment on as far as Prince Charles? I, I feel like I wanted to talk to you about that today because it's so fresh in our mm-hmm. minds. We had the funeral just, like I said, two, less than two weeks ago, and here now we have King Charles, who you have met and spoken to and even discussed some things. Is there anything else that you have to say? Well, the hardest thing is to say King Charles instead of Prince Charles. I mean, you're saying Prince Charles for decades. And so, uh, but I pray for him and wish him the best in what he's doing. You know, he's been through a lot and he understands his position. How he carries himself, what he does will be good. Again, he talked to me, he mentioned a lot of private things to me, a lot of things that he wouldn't say publicly because there are things that, that they believe and do that they don't advertise because it would be taken and criticized perhaps. So those things I'll, I'll, I'll hold off on saying. But, you know, I found him remarkably well-educated and, and well-trained for his job and uh, in the position and his private life which is not much of a private life frankly and like I said one thing I always saw in traveling is I don't want to be one of them <laughs> it's just there's too many things going on and too many people and you have no private time at all so for uh, for him I think he's at 70 he'll he'll do well it's interesting I know Diana's funeral they're worried about Prince Harry being able to walk that far and I was thinking with the Queen's funeral, I wonder if Prince Charles could walk that far because <laughs> he, he's 70. You know, most, most people become kings when they're, you know, 40s, 50s because their dad dies in the you know, 70s, whatever. But to have his mom die at that age and he's in his 70s, you know, you think, whoa, that's a long walk. It was, it was a long walk. It was <laughs> Prince Andrew and him, that whole royal mm-hmm. family. And yet they seemed very, they all, all very strong. Yeah, yeah, they did. And, uh, of course, the grand, the great grandchildren rode in the car because they were they were young, and it was it was interesting just to see the whole you know living that long to see that many generations of the royal family together and to be able to see it worldwide is something that's never been done in history before, mm-hmm. and never been that that long and that many people and and the whole package. So uh, especially when the royal family was up there in Buckingham Palace overlooking exactly the grounds to see here yeah. the next. The next, next generations, kids. the next set. And it'll be interesting to watch the coronation because I'm sure the pageantry for that will be incredible as well. So, mm-hmm. And again, you, know, you can kind of plan for a funeral and have things laid out, but you don't know when a coronation is going to come, so you can't really you know, plan that so easily. You know it's coming, but mm-hmm. th- that's why they, they become king immediately, but they don't get the official crown and all those things till the, you know they plan it out. Yeah, they want to kind of have the, yeah. 
funeral and, yeah. feeling that yeah, yeah, for her. And, and same thing in Thailand. They, they, when King uh, Pumipan died, his son didn't become king. I mean, he was king immediately, but he didn't get crowned for a year. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in their case, the stars have to line up in the funeral. All these things have to line up. And so uh, so you understand those things. You know, the, it's, it's something that doesn't happen with us, you know, normal people. But it's uh, part of the royal pageantry that you learn when you see it on TV, and the whole world learns it. Aaron, it's just been great talking to you. I always enjoy talking to you. It seems like we could go on for hours. Yeah, there's always a lot of stories and uh, incredible stories from people that you only understand if you've been there and, and watched it and seen it. And there's less and less of us now who have True. been there. I, I feel in, in, in some ways I have been part of it, but nowhere near yeah. to the level that you have. Yeah, like I said, I, to, to go through this in my 20s and 30s, is, is, and I don't know why God did that. I guess he wanted somebody to be alive now that could tell what happened because there's so many other stories out there that, are, that aren't true that people make up because of the, uh, their own motivation or their own, own thoughts. But to actually be in the room and know exactly what was said and wasn't said is, is certainly an honor and a privilege, and, and to relay that is, is, uh, is a good thing to do. Well, I enjoy teaching the books of John because John was young with Christ. And then, you know, six, 60, 70 years later, people were making a mockery of Christianity and introducing false doctrine and saying things that Christ wasn't. And he said, I was there. I touched him. I talked to him. He was the word of life. It happens with every generation. People create their history they want it to be. In fact, there's a term now they call presentism that the young people have, where it, which basically means you're going to judge the people of what they did then by what you know now, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous because whole different culture, different different everything. And yet to put them as if they should have known better is, is stupid. But young people today, because of our Internet, and they don't realize, hey, you know, 200 years ago, you met a letter to Europe, you had to go on a boat, and, and it may or may not ever get there. And, I mean, you know, family, the communication has changed. So, but that presentism is, is something that people do to try to ridicule the past and, and things, and they should understand history for what it is. And, and, and you cannot change history. I mean, things, there are things that are written that are actually dogmatic in history. There are documents and things that you can read. And so to try to change those things because it doesn't fit your scenario and your, you know, the woke mentality or whatever is the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. They should understand that if they lived back then, they'd have done the same thing. So they can criticize themselves. And if the people back then lived now, they would know what we know. Anyway, I've enjoyed being here with you and, and talking about Prince Charles and, and the, the Opera House, the things we did with them and, and the meeting with the Rothschilds. So uh, you, you learn a lot. And it's, and it's nice to be able to ask questions to them. Mm-hmm. Very few people get a chance to just ask questions in a very small, private setting. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you, Aaron. This will not be the last of our discussions <laughs> because you always have more things to pull out of a hat. Okay, we'll do that another time. Thank you very much. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for The Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com, V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.